So we're in Acts chapter 1 today. If you're new among us, we are going through a series of themes from the book of Acts. And we're about at the halfway point. We've got one more before I get into my Christmas messages this year. And then we'll pick up with Acts themes again in 2021. Well, speaking of, uh, of years, in 2016, you may recall, Donald Trump was elected via the Electoral College as President of the United States, and not everyone lived happily with that particular result. Some decided that the Electoral College needed to go. Others said he only won because of Russian meddling in the election. Then last month, it appeared that Joe Biden was elected via the Electoral College process. Of course, that's not all gone down completely yet, and not everyone has been living happily with that, you may have noticed. Some suggested before and after the election that there was this stuff called voter fraud. They suggested that laws were broken uh, to get more votes for the senior Democrat. Well, these were hardly the first contested elections in human history or American history, not by a long shot. I happen to be reading a book by Paul Johnson on the history of the American people, and I came across a section just around the very same time as this election where he talked about 1960 election, and it's generally agreed among historians that Illinois and Texas, the results were skewed by, uh, by some nefarious means, and very possibly JFK beat Nixon in 1960 due to that. Uh, even my listening to the biography of Ulysses S. Grant on Audible. They talked about the election not too long after the Civil War, which uh, brought about a great deal of voter suppression, particularly in in the South. Uh, It didn't happen to work in that case because the voter suppression did not uh, win the day in that situation. But elections have been contentious things often for a very long time. 2,000 years ago, brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ was elected king of the world by a universal or by a unanimous decision of the Trinity. (laughs) Following that, Jesus became the most popular religious figure of all time. He has won the popular vote and he has won the angelic college. (laughs) But not everyone has lived happily with that Result, King Jesus was opposed by his own people early on. Then he was opposed in different degrees by an assortment of Roman emperors. Nero was wildly hostile, but the church bounced back from his terror. Then around the end of the third century came into power a guy by the name of Diocletian. Diocletian ruled the empire for 20 years, and he sought to eradicate the religion of the Nazarene through vicious persecution. Diocletian set up two large pillars as a monument to himself in Spain. One read this. I think we have it. Do we have it, Linda? What? We don't have the Diocletian slide? Go to the next one. Okay, that one's good. (laughs) Okay. The Diocletian slide is really quite long, and uh, I should have checked this beforehand to assume that it was on the screen. Oh, I know what happened. I know what happened. 
this is my fault, so uh, my apologies to Heather and Linda for thinking that it was on there. Let me give you the summary of the Diocletian slide, okay? Can you go with that? The Diocletian slides, or uh, the, the Diocletian inscriptions, basically both celebrated him as the emperor who eradicated Christianity, the superstition of the Nazarene. Now, it would have been much better for you to actually see the inscriptions, but uh, we'll have to go with that. So he, at the end of his life, celebrated his success in getting rid of Christianity. Imagine that. But Diocletian did live long enough to see his successor become emperor, and his successor, strangely enough, converted to Christianity, called the Council of Nicaea, and made the faith of Jesus a protected religion in the empire. Today, of course, few people have heard of Diocletian, but almost everybody has heard of Jesus. How came that to be? Hard to answer, especially if you agree with Diocletian, that the Jesus story is simply superstition. How does the unbeliever explain the extraordinary power and persistence of the Christian gospel? How do we in the church understand this? Well, our study in Acts today will go a long way towards helping us as we dig into the intellectual and philosophical strength of the Christian message. Our study today is on the apostolic endeavor to actually prove and demonstrate to their hearers the authenticity of their message. And so now we come to Acts chapter 1, verse 3. And I am going to ask Andy Kish. Andy, could you bring me a bulletin up here? I forgot to bring one with me, and it's helpful for me to have the scripture sheet in front of me. Acts 1, 3, though, we have on the screen. To these also he presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And before this, Jesus had given many people reason to believe in him through the miracles that he had done. In his first Christian sermon in Acts chapter 2, Peter reminds his hearers in Jerusalem of this, speaking of the miracles that testified that Jesus was a true prophet of God. And, and Peter, in his early sermons in Acts, the ones after Acts 2, he points to the resurrection from the dead as proof that Jesus truly was the long-awaited Messiah of the people of Israel. And, and then eventually Saul of Tarsus comes along. He has this mind-blowing, life-altering encounter with the living Christ that turned him overnight from a hostile skeptic into a convinced witness. And this man, whose name was changed from Saul to Paul, became the chief defender of the Christian message. We read much of his ministry, of course, in the book of Acts, and we find that this brilliant scholarly man applied all of his learning to a compelling presentation of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and to a defense of that fantastic message. Right out of the gate, in the early days of his Christian life in Damascus, Paul was about the work of persuasion. Acts chapter 9 and verse 22, Paul, Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. So how was Paul proving Jesus? It becomes obvious as we read on. Acts 17, for example, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews and according to Paul's custom, he visited them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you 
is the Christ, and some of them were, some of them were what? Persuaded. You see the language here, reasoned, giving evidence with the end result that some people are persuaded. These are all terms dealing with the intellect, dealing with rationality, dealing with a line of, a line of argument. By the way, ha- question, how many of you have ever changed your mind about something fairly significant? Huh? I mean, ever changed your mind about something fairly significant? Come on, raise your hand. Keep them up. I want you to look around. All right, put them down. Maybe it's a doctrine. Maybe it's a political viewpoint. Maybe a, your opinion about a person. You ever heard an argument? Uh, you've heard an argument. You evaluated the evidence, and then you altered your views accordingly. Well, I know I certainly have. It, it, it does happen, doesn't it? But still, you'll hear people say this. <laughs> Don't bother trying to change anybody's mind. Don't bother trying to convince someone of something they don't currently believe. People only believe what they want to believe, and you can't change them. You hear that? Now, I, I get that the odds are against you when you seek to persuade somebody to adapt a different viewpoint, but that suggestion that no one ever changes their mind, that's clearly false. It gets more difficult as folks get older, but even then it can and does happen. Praise God. Okay, back to Acts 17. So Paul was doing his thing in Thessalonica. Then he does his thing in Berea where he went daily to the synagogue to make his case. Then when he was chased out of Berea, he goes to the big city, to Athens, where, according to Acts 17, 17, he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present in the market. Now he was dealing with complete Gentiles, the Greek philosophical types. He may have had to change his tactics with them as opposed to what he was doing in the synagogues, but his general MO did not change. He argued with the Jews and he argued with the Greeks that Jesus is the Christ. From Athens, he went to Corinth, 18.4. Paul was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks there in Corinth. He got to know a couple by the name of Priscilla and Aquila who joined Paul and his missionary team in verse 19. They, Priscilla and Aquila, came to Ephesus. He left them there. He himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. You see why I call this a theme for Max? I mean, it's really all over the place. One more. This time it is not about Paul, but about a man by the name of Apollos, who encountered Paul's friends at Ephesus and became a prominent teacher of the gospel. Speaking of him, Luke writes this, 1827, he wanted to go across to Achaia. The brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. So you see then that Peter, then a Paul, then Apollos, approached the ministry of the gospel as apologist, as those who presented it with compelling reasons designed to convince the mind and win the heart. Let's turn a corner now and ponder the relationship between reason and faith, between mental analysis and heart trust. 
In 2004, I had a conversation with a young man at a university uh, who was a Christian. I asked him this question. I said, suppose someone comes to you and asks you why you are a Christian, why you believe in Jesus, what do you tell that person? You know what he told me? He said, no reason. He didn't know why he was a Christian. He didn't know why he believed in Jesus. And in fact, he told me he didn't really think uh, we needed to have a reason or give a reason for our faith, for our hope. Hmm. The apostles in Acts, they seemed to think otherwise. They felt the need to supply people with reasons to repent and believe. But the attitude of my young student, it's not unusual at all. It's an attitude found, I would say, in most non-Christians at least, not Christians. On the occasions when I get to go to campuses and malls and do survey evangelism, I ask non-Christians this question. I'll ask them, why do you think certain people believe in Jesus? What, what do you think it is that persuaded these people to be Christians? And what do you think the non-Christians tell me? Oh, a variety of things, of course, but the, the general gist is usually this. Oh, Christians believe in Jesus because it helps them cope. Uh, they think of faith in Christ as if it were pretending. Kind of like, uh, you know, she believes in Santa Claus because it makes the holidays more fun. No rationality to it. Uh, another thing unbelievers would say is that Christians believe as they do because it is what they grew up with. And certainly, that does make a difference. But it cannot explain all of us, and it does not explain most of us. But again, it presupposes that there is no good, solid reason to believe. The unchurched world thinks that we are engaged in a huge project of wish projection and scientific or unscientific pretense. Someone defined faith as believing something you know isn't true. So often, we in the church even speak as if our faith is devoid of any rational basis. I'm going to give you a lot of quotes in the next few minutes. Uh, A.W. Tozer writes, Faith is commonly understood as little more than desire compounded with cheerful optimism. As commonly understood. But if you're headed to heaven, you are such because you are believing in Jesus now, and that belief was not so much a choice, but an essentially involuntary response to sufficient evidence. That is what belief is. I don't get up in the morning and choose my weather for the day. Do you? <laughs> I believe it's cold because the weather app and my tender ears both testify to that reality. My belief is a response to the evidence. Another quote from Tozer. The human mind is so constructed that it must of necessity believe when the evidence presented to it is convincing. It cannot help itself. When the evidence fails to convince, no faith is possible. No threats, no punishment can compel the mind to believe against clear evidence. This is precisely why we must give people reasons to put their trust in our Jesus. We don't just say to people, come in faith. We provide a witness. We provide an argument. We provide a compelling story to help them feel their need, to help them discern that Jesus can meet that need. 
A, a guy named Auguste Le Cerf writes this to explain faith, and this one's a little heavy, but follow this. He writes of two moments in the concept of faith. Here's what Le Cerf says. First, there is a receptive moment. <clears throat> the judgment is put into active receptivity through contact with divine realities. This is the moment of intuition and intellection. Second, a dynamic moment, the will adheres and the heart confides. This moment is determined by efficacious grace, the repose of the intelligence and the certainty of divine faith." End quote. He is saying that faith goes beyond the mind. It engages the will and engages the heart, but without the initial reception of the mind, there is no possibility of faith. Now, if, if I were to take a microphone and walk around the room this morning, uh, I'm not going to do it, so don't get nervous, but if I were to do it and I were to randomly ask people, why do you believe in Jesus? Some of us would stammer and hesitate in part because our reasons are not that well thought through. They may not even be on the surface of your consciousness. But they are there. We have always, we always have reasons behind our beliefs if we are sane. C.S. Lewis, the last of my many quotes, a sane man accepts or rejects any statement not because he wants or does not want to, but because the evidence seems to him good or bad. Now, let me, let me just say, I grant you there's more to it than that. We are complicated beings, but that's the most basic and true way I know to put it. So the notion that faith and belief is somehow as opposed to reason is as wrong-headed as it can be. Scripture presents saving faith as a step into the light, not a leap into the darkness. Faith is contrasted in the New Testament not with, not with reason. It is contrasted with sight. With sight, it is contrasted with spiritual or sensual, I should say, apprehension. Second Corinthians 5, 7, you all know, we walk by faith, not by what? Not by sight. We believe in one who is unseen, okay? Like you believe in a lot of things you've never seen or heard because of the evidence that they're there. And you can call that, and I would call it faith, no problem. All the apostle means by this is that we embrace, we embrace, brothers and sisters, unseen realities, not non-existent or imaginary realities. <laughs> now, how does all this play out in our practical service to Christ? Peter admonishes us to be ready to give a defense of the hope that is in us. If you were here early enough, you knew that that is our memory verse for the month. So I don't know if this is the same version. This might be a different version. I forget whether I uh, cooperated with our ESV, but... Say it, say it with me. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. To my great perplexity, I hear Christians suggest that the supplying of reasons for our faith, the giving of arguments uh, for Christianity, it's a waste of time at best, and at worst, a downright hindrance to our mission. And I don't understand this. I don't understand it. Granted, a persistent, semi-hostile back and forth that a few may engage in with the office cynic is probably not the best witness. But a reasoned presentation of Christ as worthy of our trust is a clearly 
biblical thing. This is how the apostles operated throughout the book of Acts. As you read the Bible, you see that God never expected people to believe without reasons. When Moses was sent to deliver Israel out of, out of Egypt, what did he say to God? When God gave him this calling, he said, what? Why should anybody believe me? Why should Pharaoh listen to me? Why should the Hebrews follow me? And what did God do in response to Moses' comment? Did he, God say, oh, well, they just have to choose to believe? I'm not going to supply any evidence? Not at all. God supplied Moses with the testimony of powerful signs and miracles. Remember the ten plagues that got the attention of many and supplied reasons for faith. When Elijah challenged the people of Israel to lay aside their idols and worship Yahweh, he gave them very good and fiery reasons to believe that Yahweh is the only true and the living God. When Jesus comes along and starts claiming to be the Son of God and the promised Messiah, does he expect people to believe that just because he said he was? No. When Jesus sent disciples, or John sent disciples asking Jesus, are you, are you the one that has been promised? What did Jesus say to the disciples of John? He says, go back and tell John, the lame walk, the blind see. In Luke chapter 24, after the resurrection, Jesus showed up and met with his disciples. And, and you know the story, they're rather blown away, but Jesus says to them, Luke chapter 24, verse 38, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. You think he did that just because he was hungry? No, no. He ate as further proof that I am here. What you're seeing is real. And that fish disappeared because it's now in my resurrected belly. He said to Thomas, come, touch me, my doubting friend. Read the Gospel of John and you'll find it full of reasons to believe. John 14, verse 11 Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. He was always arguing from his miracles, encouraging faith in him for that reason. After the incident with Thomas in John 20, we read this in verse 30. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So tell me, do Jesus, do John think it appropriate to give people reasons to trust in Christ? I think they do. Jesus said, believe in me because of these miracles, which attest that God is, is with me and he is my father. And what was the big one? The big one. The supreme sign to which Jesus pointed both his friends and his enemies it was his resurrection from the dead. Jesus was willing for it all to hang on that promise and on that reality. It's a funny thing, I hear that uh, trying to reason with unbelievers, it's a waste of time. Waste of time to try to reason with unbelievers. Folks say, you know, you can't argue people into the kingdom. Is that true or false? Well, it's certainly true to the extent that argument by itself never saved anyone. But you know what? 
The gospel by itself never saved anyone, not without the Holy Spirit. The question is whether or not God would ever bless a kind and reasoned argument for the truth of Christ. And the book of Acts tells us He does. <laughs> In fact, that is what evangelism is. We talk about Christ. We supply reasons to believe. If God blesses that, some folks will be eternally changed. They are not argued into the kingdom, but they are drawn into the kingdom by spirit-blessed appeals that get through to their minds and to their hearts. Paul reasoned in the synagogue, as was his custom, and some came to faith. In Athens, he announced, Acts 17, verse 30, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having, what? Furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Paul is giving a reason for the hope of which he testified. In fact, he goes so far as to suggest that a rejection of Christ is a rejection of good and sufficient reason. He does, and it is. This is astonishing to unbelievers who think that faith is unreasonable, but we actually hold that unbelief is unreasonable. We don't speak of unbelief with scorn and contempt. No, no. Peter calls for gentleness and reverence in our dealing with others. We understand that lost people are blinded, that they cannot see the kingdom of God, but we do claim the, ev the evidence for our Lord. It is sufficient so that all are commanded to repent and bow before Jesus the King. Debating whether to tell you a story that's not in my script. Should I do it? You want to hear the story? Okay. You're going to be two minutes late because of this. So my sister, Ginger, uh, five years older than me, was on the phone yesterday. My brother, my, my, my oldest sister and my older brother, my older brother turned 70 a few days ago. My oldest sister turned 75 today. I'm the youngest of five. The uh, youngest in the group is my sister, Ginger, who's five years older than me. And... Uh, <laughs> She got an all-expense-paid scholarship, national merit finalist, and all of that, and then decided she didn't like college and dropped out, which made my father's head completely explode so, since he never got to go to college. Eventually, she got back to college, ended up at the pharmacy school at the University of Florida when I was a student there. And uh, she and I had very little, very little in common. By now, I'm this radical, headed to seminary Christian guy, right? And she is... She's married to a, a young man who's uh, actually going to vet school at Ohio State. He was, so they weren't living together. She's at pharmacy school in Gainesville. He's in vet school in Columbus. and all that. So I developed this relationship with my sister, really for the first time in my life, and we went to basketball games together. And, and I, I would try to witness to her, and, and she, she told me I was throwing my life away to become a pastor and all of that. And, and, but we still got along until one day I told her that she was wrong for not following Jesus. And she was like, you know, if you want to throw your life away, that's fine. But when I finally told her that she was not squarely facing the facts, she decided she never wanted to see me again. And she didn't. 
wasn't at my wedding, didn't appear in my life again until many years later. She had gone off to Naples, Florida, became the head pharmacist at the hospital there, Dan and Carol, but uh, in that position became a drug addict. Landed in a, uh, landed in a light of life type facility. Uh, and, and one day a pastor visited there <laughs> and found that my sister was different. Her vocabulary was not what she was used to hearing in that atmosphere. And uh, talked to her about Christ. And anyway, long he had a son that was a lawyer. He ended up getting her a big settlement and she got back on her feet and now lives with five cats in Ocala, Florida again. But this guy, this preacher, came in and told her of Jesus in that place. And I can't say it restored everything she'd lost through her drug addiction, but there's a hope there uh, that I could not have imagined being there before. So that's my side story. Now I got to get back. Uh, but, that, but that's where the conflict came when I said to her, you know, not only is it okay for me to follow Jesus, it's right for you to do so. There is sufficient evidence for you to make him your savior and your king, and, and, and you're in trouble if you don't. Well, this is our calling, brothers and sisters, to bear witness, to offer what evidence we can. And, and what is the evidence? Okay, what are the reasons for Christian faith of which I speak? Well, there are essentially three spoken of in the book of Acts, and if you're following on your outline, uh, there's a mess up there that's my fault, uh, but I'm going to give you three. Reason number one for putting faith in Christ for the hope that is in us is because of the tremendous number of Old Testament prophecies that have fulfilled in the life and death of Jesus. When we read of Paul reasoning with the Jews in, in, this, uh, in, in the book of Acts, what was he doing in those synagogues? He was basically opening up the Old Testament, showing people how all these prophecies about the Messiah were fulfilled in Christ from their own revered scripture. And the prophetic fulfillments are staggering if you attempt to study them. Hundreds of years before he came, it was foretold that the Messiah would be born of a virgin in Bethlehem, Isaiah 7, Micah 5. That, it was, uh, that, that he would be betrayed by a friend for silver. That's in Psalm 41 and Zechariah 11. He would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, Zechariah 9. He'd be killed by crucifixion, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22. He would not remain in the grave, Psalm 16. Paul was able to write in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 3, I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Everything in life and death and his resurrection was according to the scriptures. These are scriptures written over a thousand year period by a wide variety of writers from different circumstances in different locations and yet their writings so clearly form one book that points to this one man. And Jesus said in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. Second reason that faith uh, for faith found in the New Testament is the resurrection of Christ. We've discussed this already several times in our study, so I'm going to move on to the third reason for faith in the New Testament. That is the changed lives of, of believers. The changed lives of believers. What do you say about guys like Saul of Tarsus, who <laughs> went from persecuting Christians to being <laughs> persecuted for being one of them? What do you say about a group of lousy fishermen who turned the world upside down and wrote the world's all-time bestseller? 
What, what do you say about the millions today who can testify that addictions and obsessions and emotional bondages of all sort have been broken by the power of Christ and His Word? What do you say about all the broken marriages that have been set right when men and women called for help in the name of Christ? What do you say about all the hospitals and all the food distribution centers and all the schools around the world that are paid for and staffed by Christians? Sure, there have been fools and maniacs who have called themselves by the name of Christ, but there can be no doubt that allegiance to Jesus has led to more more good on this planet than any other 10 reasons put together. And of course, I wish I could just give you a day to live in my shoes, to know what I know, to contemplate what I have seen and heard and felt, and to know the rich wonder of knowing God as the preeminent, ever-present reality in your life. Now, that said, there are times when I have my doubts, I admit that, but there are far more days when I can no more deny the truth of Christ than I can my own existence. And when I do struggle with doubt, the solution for me, listen, the solution is not found in a flight from reason, but in deeper thought, honest reflection, true evaluation, remembering because the hope I have found is well-founded. The, the case for Christ, it is solid and it is undeniable. And knowing this to be so, it is my goal, and I urge all of you who agree with me to make it your goal, that we live in such a way that our lives are inexplicable if Jesus is not risen. And then share him with others as God gives us opportunity. This is what the early believers did in Acts. And because they did, we do. We are following Jesus here today. 2,000 years and 6,000 miles later. What a Savior we serve.